Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, February 26th, 2023. My name is Bill McCann. And I'll start with the talk section of the magazine. YouTube made Emma Chamberlain a star. Now she's leaving it behind. The interview is, as usual, David Marchese. At only 21, Emma Chamberlain is already a veteran of of YouTube fame. Starting at 16, Chamberlain began making and sharing videos of herself doing things like showing off her dollar store haul or making a late-night burrito. Thanks to her sardonic humor, her quirky, quick-paced, and ultimately highly influential editing style, and her approachable on-camera charm, she made the mundane into something magical. Her videos became frequent viral smashes and turned her into one of the platform's most popular personalities. As you can imagine, opportunities have arisen. Chamberlain recently signed a deal with Spotify, for which, as of this month, She is exclusively producing her often philosophical Anything Goes podcast. She's also just become one of the global faces of Lancome Cosmetics, and that's in addition to having started her own coffee brand, Chamberlain Coffee. The world of YouTube, where she now posts only infrequently, is not, as it turns out, big enough. Now that I'm older, Chamberlain says, I'm more interested in things being more creative rather than just pure entertainment, things that feel more beautiful. David asks, you became famous for making these funny videos about your daily life, but since you shifted your focus away toward, since you shifted your focus toward podcasting, your material has gotten more serious. Now you're as likely to talk about mortality or conformity as you are to be playful or share the details of your day. I'm sure some of that is just about growing up, but might your more searching attitude also be a reaction to the strangeness of getting so much attention at such a young age? And she says, so I started YouTube during a time in my life when I was depressed, like severely depressed, gave me distraction and something to put my energy toward. But it got to a point where my depression came back, and the reason was because my whole life was on the Internet. I felt so exposed. I felt so much pressure, and I was scared. My anxiety was out of control. In this moment, I'm at a good place. But maybe a year and a half, two years ago, it was challenging. Being on the Internet was something I dreamed of, and everybody was like, your life must be perfect now. And I was like, no, it's not. I felt guilty because I had what people dream of, and I was so scared and depressed and broken. But at the same time, I felt like I meant to do this. When I meet people who watch my videos, listen to my podcast, even buy my coffee, and they tell me that these things bring them joy, that's worth all the pain, because that's what life is about. It's about bringing joy and comfort to people. That heals the wounds that come with this career. Because as much as I hate to admit it, and as much as people probably don't like to hear from me, this expletive messes with your head. David, how exactly, what causes the anxiety? 
my physical safety. I'm a young gal. I spend a lot of time by myself, and I feel like a target. It's hard to feel safe. That's on a physical level. But on a psychological level, the Internet is constantly witch hunting. I understand why seeing somebody get burned at the stake sucks you in, in a way that nothing else does. I don't blame people for having this interest, but I'm terrified because I am human and I'm not perfect. And who knows what people could find out about me. Somebody could make up a lie about me tomorrow and ruin my life. I feel powerless about my own identity at times because I feel like it's in the control of the public. Sometimes it can feel like, oh, do I even have a voice? I do, but are people listening to me or do they just have an idea of who I am? And that's stronger. Feeling out of control in my identity has caused psychological harm. It's caused severe perfectionism. Everything I do, I must be perfect. I must treat everyone perfectly. I must show up to everything on time. This is all behavioral, by the way. I don't care about having perfect Instagram lips and a perfect Instagram body. It's this fear of not being a perfect enough person because I feel like any moment, any mistake could be the end. I've seen people get destroyed on the Internet. It's a scary place to exist. Do you think there's a natural shelf life to being a YouTube star, both in terms of the star's ability to keep doing it and the audience staying interested? Yes, you can't do YouTube forever. This schedule that YouTubers put themselves on is rigorous. You have to be uploading every week. If you upload every two weeks, it has to be a long video. And if you upload once a month, you better be making a documentary. If you're not producing consistently, you won't grow. That's what drives the algorithm. There's pressure to be producing at a level that is unrealistic. Inevitably, people burn out or they become too obsessed with being consistent and they never take time off to evolve their creative side. So it becomes stale. Right now, with my video creation, I'm having fun just posting here and there. I made a bunch of videos traveling in Europe this summer because I wanted to document it for me. To be honest, I'm not ready to go back and be a regular video creator because I don't know what I want to do yet. I haven't had time to grow my identity properly as a video creator because I was too caught up on the hamster wheel of it all. Do you see the Spotify deal in the coffee business as an escape hatch from that? Well, for one thing, Spotify is integrating video on the platform. I've never filmed a podcast before, but we're going to start filming some episodes. When it comes to YouTube videos or videos that are not podcasts, I don't think I've ever done, I'll ever be done with that. My first love was editing videos, taking footage that is nothing and turning it into something. I love it. So I'm not done with that, but I had a very unhealthy relationship with creating YouTube videos, and I'm unlearning that right now. You must upload once a week or else everybody will forget about you. You must make clean videos that are super clickbaity or else nobody's going to watch. Brand deals are annoying, but you need to do them or else you won't have as much of a job. There were all these rules that I absorbed and they became too much. It was also hard to be seeing and editing my own face all the time. So I'm pulling back on YouTube for my own well-being. I want YouTube to just be fun again. 
And I think it will be now that podcasting is my number one focus other than the Chamberlain Coffee. Has it become harder over time to move the cultural needle with a YouTube video? It's gotten harder for me to find something that moves my needle. There's definitely a formula for getting views. It's something extreme, something eye-catching. I used to play into a, that a lot more, and that started to feel inorganic. The formula for growing at an exponential rate has kind of always remained the same. It's clickbaity. And by the way, I did it too. It's a part of the business. What's an example of your version of a clickbaity video? Tilting a video like waking up at 5 a.m. Is it worth it? When you click on the video, there's this fast-paced, funny editing style, which I loved at the time. And then there's this clickbaity title and clickbaity, super precise thumbnail that I thought about more deeply than you can imagine. My balance was that I might have an eye-catching title and a thumbnail that feels maybe goofy or stupid. But when you click the video, you'd be like, okay, she's actually being normal. And this wasn't what I expected, but I'm glad I'm here. I don't want to say I was tricking people, but I was playing the game because that's what you have to do if you want to succeed. What's your perspective on a guy like Mr. Beast? How do you, how do the underlying dynamics of what he does compare with what you were doing? I think Mr. Beast is looking at YouTube in the complete opposite way I do. I look at YouTube more as a creative canvas, whereas Mr. Beast is a business. This is strategic. It's not intimate. Do we really know Mr. Beast? What does Mr. Beast's bedroom look like? What does Mr. Beast eat for breakfast? No one knows. He's this vehicle for entertaining content. He's the common denominator, but all of his content is so different, and it has nothing to do with him. His personal presence is not to be ignored. People know him now, but he's business-minded, and I think I'm more emotional, creative-minded. Mr. Beast is the YouTube handle of Jimmy Donaldson whose elaborate stunts have led to his channel attracting more than 130 million subscribers. I should say that um, in Marchese's interviews, he has little side comments printed in red that explain some of the comments that people make. That was the uh, one on Mr. Beast. And that David asked, the, that emotional connection, which I think boils down to relatability is a lot of what draws people to you. You seem like someone your fans could know, but your life is different from what it was when you started on YouTube. You're at Lancome campaigns. You're at the Met Gala. Do you ever worry that the more rarefied circumstances of your life now might chip away at your relatability? I've thought about this a lot. I've been through phases where people were like, we lost her. There's no way she's going to continue to be relatable. I can't speak to these people directly, but in my mind, I was screaming, no, I promise you, that's not going to happen. Because what is relatable about a person is the way they see the world. That's changed with age, but not because of my career. I'm the same bitch I've always been. And guess what? People who have one follower on Instagram, there is no difference between me and those people. 
I think a lot of celebrities don't feel that way. There are some who have this experience and they feel immortal, unstoppable. I know that's not true. I may have some life experiences that another 21-year-old girl might not. But that 21-year-old girl has experiences that I've never had. Also, I don't feel like I 100% fit into this whole industry. I participate because I'm fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, you'd expect that something like going to the Met Gala would unlock a new emotion and or see you see the world in a new way. You you level up. No, you don't. It's the same expletive as going to the prom. David says, I never went to prom. Actually, I didn't either. I tested out of school junior year and missed the prom. But I did go to formal and all those types of things. David, I was suspended and wasn't allowed to go. And she says, iconic. David says, I guess it was iconic now that I think about it. We turned out okay, right? Laughs. Yeah, neither of us missed much. We can safely say that. Anyway, and it, David says, in addition to relatability, your sense of humor is something that people have pointed to as being particularly fresh or Gen Z specific. Can you talk about what shaped it? Who do you think is funny? You know, I've, I've never in my life watched stand-up comedy and laughed. There's something so inorganic about it that I don't find it funny. You know what I just watched that I thought was funny? This series called YOLO. I don't know what it is about that, but I was laughing and I was shocked because I so rarely laugh at anything. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, I think you should leave. So funny. The American, The Office. I laugh at that every time. And in the sidebar, it says, YOLO is an animated series on Adult Swim about two fun-loving Australian girls. And I Think You Should Leave is a Netflix sketch comedy series which revels in interpersonal awkwardness and social discomfort that Tim Robinson helped create and stars in. David says, how is it possible that a stand-up show has never made you laugh? Okay, there have been like viral clips of stand-up shows and I've been like funny. But whenever I put on a Netflix special of a comedian, I never want to watch them again. I get so angry. I'm like, why is this not funny? All the stand-up comedians are going to be so offended by me now. David, you're... Your humor obviously still comes through on the podcast, but it's not typically in the context of the specifics of your life like it was with your YouTube videos. Is keeping your personal life a little closer to the vest something you felt like you had to do for your own psychological well-being? I felt such fatigue when it came to filming my life. I was like, I make coffee. I run errands. I'm not jumping out of airplanes. There's nothing interesting. I got to a point where I was like, I physically can't do it. it. Makes me depressed. On top of that, I like having sacred moments throughout my day that aren't shared with the world. Like when I wake up and make coffee. I felt like I didn't have any me time before because my me time was filmed. 
Now I dedicate a few hours a week to recording a podcast. Makes me feel like my life is more sacred. It allows me to share what I've been thinking about, but I can do the majority of the thinking in private. I know some people have said, we care about your day-to-day -day life and want to see it, which is flattering, but because I can't imagine it, I'm like, why do you care? I can't do it. David, unlike movie stars or reality TV stars or even online influencers, the YouTube celebrity is still such a new phenomenon that we don't have much in the way of models or templates for what a career that started in that space tends to look like. But do you have any sense of what you are, your arc might look like or what you'd like it to be? I don't focus too heavily on the future for the reason you just explained. We don't know what's next. I have vague ideas about of things that I might want to pursue when I'm older. I love creating videos, so maybe down the line that turns into something more serious, maybe in the documentary world. My podcast, I want to continue that for as long as I can, because there will be no shortage of things to talk about. Then I am obsessed with the visual identity of brands, the marketing strategies. I love working on Chamberlain Coffee because I get to do that nitty-gritty stuff in the background. But I could wake up one day and be like, I want to audition for a movie. Also, if I want to quit, maybe I quit. Maybe when I'm 30, I'll be like, I'm done. I'm going to open up a tiny coffee shop and work there and get married and have babies. I don't know. No one knows. And now I'll read a letter of recommendation. Why I watch the closing credits of every movie I see. One look is enough to challenge the myth of the genius auteur calling all the shots. There's a picture just underneath the title, and it shows all those chairs, you know, that you see directors sitting in all the time. It has a, on each chair there's a, um, a title of one of the uh, contributors to the movie. So it has executive producer, producer, director, art director, camera operator, gaffer, dolly grip, generator operator, costume designer, makeup artist. Looks like there's about a hundred. This is a story by Emma Cantor. I watch the closing credits of every movie I see. I learned from my parents who would always sit in the dark theater watching the names scroll down the screen while the ushers trickled in and the rest of the audience collected their belongings. Their ritual confused me as a kid. Muppet Treasure Island was over. Kermit and his friends were reunited, and the villain has his comeuppance. But my parents were still in their seats, eyes on the screen. What more were they expecting? My parents were practicing what now feels like a lost pastime, one I happily joined in as I got older. Back in the golden age of Hollywood, the credits, albeit far less comprehensive, appeared at the beginning of the movie for all to see. Now they run at the end, like the answers to a special round of movie trivia for those in the know. Before Google and Internet Movie Database, if you weren't sure of the name of a certain scene-stealing character actor or who was responsible for the exquisite editing, 
The credits were your source of confirmation. Childhood movie nights at home with my parents and brother would often end with us opening the film encyclopedia by Ephraim Katz, an impressive A to Z volume that compiled bios and credits from the silent era to the early aughts. We'd go down the rabbit holes and hop from one actor or director to another. You were right. It was a young Norman Lloyd, well-spotted. What else was he in? The first line of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Love of the Last Tycoon could describe my coming of age. Quoting, Though I haven't ever been on the screen, I was brought up in pictures. Both of my parents have backgrounds in film. They met cute while working on an independent feature and grew up visiting sets. And I grew up visiting sets with my dad when I was on break from school. I remember sitting in a director's chair next to Sidney Lumet watching the monitor. It seemed to require hours of takes to get through one page of dialogue. When I got bored of watching the in action, I played slapjack with the director of photography's daughter on one of the sets that wasn't being used. I visited the wardrobe department and practiced sewing in a straight line on a sheet of loose leaf paper. I learned about other crew's assignments too, including the script supervisor who showed me her clipboard with the meticulous notes she kept to ensure each scene's accuracy and consistency. I learned the difference between a gaffer and a grip, and soon I began using acronyms like DP. They made me feel like an insider. Because of this, I especially love movies about movies. I watched Singing in the Rain over and over as a child. In college, I fell hard for Day for Night, La Nuit Americaine, Francois Truffaut's love letter to cinema. My parents, who had their own version of a movie romance, say that the film manages to capture the daily joys and frustrations of life on set. It also conjures that bittersweet moment when the film wraps and the cast and crew go their separate ways. It's the nature of the business. I imagine that for industry people like my parents, reading the credits is akin to looking through an old yearbook, spotting familiar names and wondering wistfully what so-and-so is up to these days. Our culture of on-demand binge-watching conditions us to race past the credits, taking for granted the collective creative efforts behind the movies and TV shows we so voraciously consume. Many streamers shrink the credits, making them ineligible on our screens, illegible on our screens. Some even allow us to skip them entirely. Post-credit sequences, meanwhile, a mainstay of franchise fare like the Marvel films, have trained audiences to regard credits as mere backdrops for the latest Easter egg or teaser. We forget that countless individuals, each a storyteller in their own right, make our viewing possible. The distinction between art and content is lost. There's a line in Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird that suggests attention is a form of love a statement that resonates in this era of diminished attention spans. That's one of the reasons I linger 
to watch the credits. And I encourage anyone with an appreciation for movies and for the people who make them to stay after the final scene. One look at the credits is enough to challenge the myth of the genius auteur calling all the shots. Credits are the closest that many behind-the-scenes, below-the-line artists and technicians get to a curtain call. These unsung collaborators, the crew members we don't see hitting the talk show circuit or strutting down the end carp the red carpet, but whose long work days and skillful labor are an essential source of film magic, deserve their moment in the spotlight. So I'm heartened when I notice those moviegoers who, like me, take a few extra minutes to sit through the credits. They might be looking for the name of someone they know or curious about the shooting locations. Maybe they're savoring the closing music while they reflect on what they've just watched. And yes, maybe they're partially hoping to discover a bonus scene. Doesn't matter. We're in the same club. An unspoken intimacy and solidarity exists among us the attentive viewers, and the village of filmmakers we honor. Sometimes I'm tempted to seize on this connection. I would offer a nod or a glance of recognition. Even bolder, I imagine turning to them and asking, so, what did you think? Above all, though, I think of my parents and the other members of the extended movie-making family every time I stay behind in my theater seat. I hope I do them credit. Emma Cantor is a writer and editor at Publisher Weekly, Publishers Weekly. Now I'll read an article from the Times. REM sleep is magical. Here's what the experts know. Dreaming, memory making, problem solving. A lot happens during the most active sleep phase. So, article by Carolyn Todd. Any sleep tracker will show you that slumber is far from a passive affair, and no stage of sleep demonstrates that better than rapid eye movement, or REM, commonly called dream sleep. It's also called paradoxical sleep or active sleep, because REM sleep is actually very close to being awake, says Dr. Rachikumar Gupta, a sleep medicine and pulmonary specialist at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Before scientists discovered REM sleep in the 50s, it wasn't clear that much of anything was happening in the brain at night. Researchers today, however, understand sleep as a highly active process composed of very different types of rest, including REM, which, is, which in some ways doesn't seem like rest at all. While the body typically remains off during REM sleep, the brain is very much on. It's generating vivid dreams, as well as synthesizing memories and knowledge. Scientists are still working to unravel exactly how this strange state of consciousness works. It's fair to say there's a lot left to learn about REM sleep, Dr. Dasgupta said, but from what researchers do understand, REM is critical to our emotional health and brain function and potentially even our longevity. Where does REM sleep fall in the sleep cycle? Throughout the night, 
We're going in and out of this rhythmic, symphonic pattern of the various stages of sleep. Non-REM, one, two, three, and REM, says Rebecca Robbins, an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and an associate scientist in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As you do doze off, you enter the first stage of non-REM. This lasts less than 10 minutes and is considered a light sleep. Your breathing and heart rate decelerate and your muscles relax as you slip into the second stage of non-REM sleep, where your body temperature drops and your brain waves get slower. Then you enter the third stage, known as deep sleep, when your body repairs your bones and muscles, strengthens your immune system, releases hormones, and restores your energy. After that, REM sleep begins, and your heart rate, breathing, and brain activity all increase. Brain regions involved in processing emotions and sensory input from your dream world light up. Meanwhile, your brain paralyzes the muscles in your arms and legs, preventing you from acting out your dreams. Ideally, you move through the four stages in a 90 to 110 minute cycles, cycle that repeat four to six times in a typical night. Then after your last REM cycle, you wake up rested and alert, said Dr. Indira Guru Hagvachula, a sleep specialist at Penn Medicine and associate professor of medicine at the VA Medical Center in Philadelphia. What are the benefits of REM sleep? If you've ever gone to bed upset about something and woken up noticeably less bothered, it's likely a result of the emotional processing and memory reconsolidation that happened during REM. There's evidence that your brain divorces memories from their emotional charge, removing the sharp, painful edges from life's difficulties, said Marth Matthew Walker, a professor of neuroscience and psychology and the founder and director of the Center for Human Sleep Science at the University of California, Berkeley. REM is like a form of overnight therapy, he said. REM also makes us better learners. During this sleep stage, your brain strengthens neural connections formed by the previous day's experiences and integrates them into existing networks, Dr. Robbins said. Dr. Walker added, we take those new pieces of information and start colliding them with our back catalog of stored information. It's almost a form of informational alchemy. These novel connections also make us more creative, he said. We wake up with a revised mind-wide web of associations that helps us solve problems. Researchers in Dr. Walker's lab conducted a small study where people were roused from different stages of sleep and asked to solve anagram puzzles. They found that subjects awakened from REM sleep solved 32% more anagrams than subjects who were interrupted during non-REM sleep. Then, of course, there's dreaming. The majority of our vivid dreaming takes place during REM. Some experts suspect that dreams are a mere byproduct of REM sleep, the mental manifestation of neurological work. But others think they might help people process painful experiences, Dr. Walker said. 
And although most physical processes like repairing bone and muscle tissues happen during the non-REM sleep stages, some hormonal changes occur when someone is in REM, Dr. Walker said, like the release of testosterone, which peaks at the onset of the first REM cycle. What happens if you don't get enough REM? Genetics and other factors can influence the amount of sleep you need, but most adults should aim for seven to nine hours each night, which includes about two hours of REM sleep. In general, you need less sleep as you age, including slightly less REM, but large deficits of REM sleep, no matter your age, can deprive you of its psychological benefits. You may have more trouble learning, processing emotional experiences, or solving problems. Dysregulated REM sleep is also linked with cognitive and mental health issues, like slower thinking and depression, said Dr. Anna Krieger, medical director of the Center for Sleep Medicine at Wheel Cornell Medicine. Too little REM sleep, fragmented REM or REM sleep behavior disorder, where muscle paralysis fails to happen and people physically act out their dreams, often by kicking or punching, are associated with neurological issues from mild forgetfulness to dementia and Parkinson's disease. 2020 study of over 4,000 middle-aged and older adults found that each 5% decrease in REM sleep was linked with a 13% greater risk of dying from any cause over the next two decades. Lack of sleep in general is associated with death, but the research suggests that not getting enough REM sleep is the single strongest factor of all stages, Dr. Walker said. Dr. Walker and other experts aren't sure what to make of this relationship between REM sleep and mortality. I don't think we understand REM sleep well enough yet to definitively say which mechanisms are at play, he said. Or if lack of REM is actually causing death, how do you know if you need more? It's hard to tease apart signs of REM sleep deficiency from signs of overall sleep deprivation. If you're sleep deprived, then you're probably REM deprived. Certain behaviors, however, can specifically compromise your REM sleep. Cutting your sleep short by going to bed late and then using an alarm clock to wake up can put you at risk for chronic deprivation of REM sleep. That's because the longest REM period often happen at the end of the night. Having an alcoholic drink before bed also markedly impairs your REM sleep, Dr. Walker said, because the process of metabolizing alcohol produces compounds that affect sleep cycle regulation. What's more, Moderate and heavy drinkers have a higher risk of REM sleep behavior disorder. Antidepressants can also reduce REM sleep or trigger REM sleep behavior disorder. And specific conditions like narcolepsy, obstructive sleep apnea, and depression can elevate your risk of REM abnormalities. If you have one of these conditions and are feeling sleep-deprived, Seek guidance from a sleep specialist. With sleep apnea, for instance, the minute we initiate therapy, 
people often get a REM rebound. Is it possible to prioritize REM sleep? Though recent research suggests people may get slightly more REM sleep in the winter, it's a modern myth that you can target one specific stage of sleep for improvement. People want to manipulate sleep and have more of this particular stage, but the body doesn't function like that, Dr. Krieger said. The natural architecture of sleep is not something to tinker with, but to protect. The way to get healthy REM sleep is to focus on getting healthy sleep overall and let your brain do the rest. Waking up and going to bed at the same time every day helps your brain and body know when they should be resting, making sleep more efficient, Dr. Robbins said. Other behaviors that help regulate your biological clock include having consistent eating schedule and not eating too late, exercising regularly, getting some morning sunlight, and avoiding blue light in the evening. Make sure to follow other sleep hygiene best practices, such as avoiding alcohol and stimulants like caffeine and nicotine, particularly later in the day, and maintaining a sleep environment that is dark, quiet, and cool. And don't overlook the importance of a wind-down routine to help you shift from action to a night of rest and recovery, including that bizarrely busy time your brain spends in REM. The author Carolyn Todd is a freelance health journalist who covers wellness, mental well-being, and diabetes. Now I'll read the Screenman section. Modern dads are embarrassing, which just might be good politics. The Congressional Dads Caucus makes savvy use of its own faint goofiness. This is an article by Philip Masiak. You can't hear Jimmy Gomez too well in the wide-angle C-SPAN footage. You can't see him very well either until the camera starts to zoom in. The congressman from Southern California is standing in the House next to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, slung on his chest, crumpling his standard-issue Washington suit, is a young gentleman named Hodge, his infant son. Hodge is admirably well-behaved, his fuzzy head bobbing as his father smiles and shouts out his House leadership vote. On behalf of my son Hodge and all the working families who need an expanded child tax credit, Hakeem Jeffries. Few of his colleagues are paying attention. Gomez even feels the need to wiggle Hodge's legs to indicate that his son is present. The whole thing is a classic dad scenario. Big build-up, stiff commitment to the bit, tepid response. A few weeks later, alongside several colleagues, Gomez appeared outside the Capitol to announce the formation of the Congressional Dads Caucus. The group, just one of several hundred congressional member organizations, was created to advocate for legislative goals like the expanded child tax credit and paid family leave. Gomez hopes, as he said after voting with Hodge, to bring visibility to the role of working dads across the country. Of course, working dads aren't exactly a minority in the House. Historically, the whole thing is a dad's caucus, and Gomez's group now represents only about two dozen of the chamber's scores 
upon scores of male parents, few of whom appear to struggle with childcare. It was for this precise reason that members formed the Moms in the House Caucus in 2019, not just to spearhead a legislative agenda, but also to help the House itself create a previously non-existent infrastructure for mothers of young children. Congress wasn't built for members like me, Representative Katie Porter, a single mother of three school-aged children, said. Conveniently, they also contributed to the ongoing reframing of the archetypal political mom from the cold careerists of sexist attacks to a relatable vision of tenacity, the mom as fighter. The Dad's Caucus exists largely to amplify the same legislative priorities championed by the moms, but it has predictably been somewhat hapless in its image control. Gomez followed up his vote with an Instagram reel captioned, Baby Gomez takes over Congress. The video is mostly a montage of Hodge in the arms of high-profile members, Ocasio-Cortez, Rashid Talab, Nancy Pelosi. There's the aftermath of a diaper change and another shot of the chest carrier, but the clips ends with Hodge in a stroller trailing what appears to be Gomez, who walks with purpose through the halls of Congress. This is, in other words, a video of other people interacting with Hodge while his dad is at work. Gomez will mostly, most likely not need to return to the floor of the house with Hodge, and he surely knows that working parents benefit more from reliable daycare and universal pre-K than from social permission to wear a, a baby Bjorn to the office. But he also appears to know something else. The messaging power of a mildly doofy dad gamely changing his son's blowout and then strapping him right back on. Public acts of fatherhood, no matter how mundane, tend to attract positive attention. One of my earliest memories of being a father is walking our infant daughter through downtown Baton Rouge in her stroller and having several motorists slow down to lavish praise on me. You're doing the right thing, one shouted. At the grocery store, with my daughter and her carrier, rocking her to sleep on the stoop, even holding her at the doctor's office, for these deeds I received regular rapturous affirmation that, it probably goes without saying, is seldom the standard for moms. Visible acts of dadliness are subject to a kind of social grade inflation that Gomez is savvy to utilize. All this generosity toward dads rests on lowered expectations. Gomez seems to be collecting the same positive reinforcement for changing Hodge's diaper in the house cloakroom that Hodge will one day collect for using a big boy spoon to smear mush peas on his face for the first time. Images of dadhood have evolved from stern authoritarianism and menacing threat to bumbling inadequacy and then back again. But the modern middle-class liberal dad subject is generally pictured as a figure of education. He is doing his best to learn, to catch up, to be better. He's goofy, C 
seemingly harmless, well-intentioned, sometimes self-aware, but probably not aware of his kid's next dentist appointments. Gomez understands the power of today's dad, his jokes, his bod, his rock music, his hat. Professional moms are pilloried for their domestic duties they are perceived to have abandoned. But dads like me and Gomez are credited for social perks we've received to have valiantly given up coolness, independence, masculine command. This, I think, is precisely what the announcement of the Dad's Caucus sought to leverage, the high cringe of being a dad. Gomez tweeted a link to the live stream of the announcement by writing, as Lizzo would say, it's about damn time. Stop, Dad, you're embarrassing us. At the, that was in parentheses, stop, Dad, you're embarrassing us, quoting Lizzo. At the small news conference, the dads appeared alongside Talib, the group's one mother. The mood was light, cute, with much gregariousness, gregarious chuckling. Representative Dan Goldman held up a note his daughter had left him on a legal pad and his very congressional-looking folio. Hi, Daddy, read. I love you. I will give you hugs and kisses when you get home. The archetype these men deliberately embodied was both faintly embarrassing and comfortable with embarrassment. A vision of fatherhood, even masculinity, that gains what strength it has from a willingness to seem soft. A, notal, a notable aspect of both this vision and the Dad's Caucus itself is that they are not bipartisan. An influential segment of today's conservative movement is allergic to such embarrassment. These conservatives recognize a similar transformation in contemporary dadhood, but they register it as diminishment and decay. The last two years, Tucker Carlson has both released a series called The End of Men and mocked Pete Buttigieg for taking paternity leave by saying he was trying to figure out how to breastfeed. On Twitter, the commentator Matt Walsh refused the very concept of paternity leave with the same energy that dads refuse instructions from Ikea furniture. The Missouri Senator Josh Hawley has written a forthcoming book entitled Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs, A Free Society That Despises Manhood, the promotional copy reads, will not remain free. The Dad's Caucus offers a bit of aesthetic counter-programming to these dads under siege. The type of dad they choose to play is often caricatured as weak, but it's also one that seems secure in its dominance of the contemporary imagination. While their opposite numbers recoil from anything that puts their nostalgic vision of daddy masculinity at risk, these dads are confident. The aura of embarrassment that can surround baby wearing, diaper changing, and paternity leave still reeks of sexism and homophobia. The congressional dads know that to give in to this embarrassment is to lose, to be lost in time. So they play it cool, or at least as cool as a bunch of middle-aged dads can. 
It's all right, buddy, they whisper. Take off your AR-15 lapel pin and strap on your infant. As Lizzo would say, you'll feel good as hell. The author, Philip Masiak, is the TV editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books and the author of the forthcoming book, Avidly Reads Scream Time. He teaches at Washington University in St. Louis. And now I'll read a letter to the ethicist. My friend is dating a murderer. Should I do anything about it? The magazine's ethicist columnist on what to do when a roommate is in a relationship with a convicted murderer. And the ethicist is Kwame Anthony Apaya. And the letter. I have a childhood friend who recently moved into my home. Everything has been going well, except she's dating an inmate who is convicted of murdering one of his family members. This inmate is somebody we knew when we were younger. Our friend group was very affected by the murder. I have my own personal trauma with the inmate, and I know my roommate does as well. He is really not a great guy. But my roommate is convinced the inmate has changed. She tells me details about the relationship as friends do. It's clear to me he hasn't changed much. I avoid talking about him as much as possible and change the subject if he's brought up. Although he still has 11 years left on his sentence, he is trying to appeal for a lesser term. I'm hopeful their relationship will end before he's released. Otherwise, I fear for safety. I can see the red flags every day. What do I do to help? My family tells me that if I try to talk to her about it, I will just push her away. I'm having a hard time just standing by. Name was withheld. And from the ethicist, a relationship that takes place while one party is in prison doesn't tell you very much about what things will be like once the partner has been released. Physical violence can't occur when two people are meeting only under supervision, and the incarcerated partner has a strong incentive to behave well in order to maintain a relationship that may be one of the few positive elements in his life. Nor can I judge whether this man would pose a danger to your friend once he's been released. You haven't said anything about what you think the red flags are beyond your opinion, not shared by your roommate, who surely knows him better than you do, that he's not much changed. Still, to go by the available research, men are much less likely to commit violent crimes in middle age than in their youth. In fact, a study of recidivism rates for people paroled from life sentences in California between 95 and 2011 found that only 0.6% of parolees were later convicted of felonies, none of them for murder. Absent specific information, then, I would say that the risk here may be less substantial than you fear. And this inmate won't be released early if a parole board thinks he poses a significant danger. A separate issue is how you and your friends would feel if your roommate asked you to accept the presence of someone who caused all of you enormous distress, even if it was many years ago. It would take a special effort on your part to reconcile with him, and it would be a lot of your your it would be a lot for your roommate to ask. And yet forgiveness, even if partial and provisional, is a worthwhile aim. Convey your concerns in a supportive way, but try to be open as well to her views. 
A world without second chances is a dismal one for offenders who have served their sentences. The best outcome from the formerly incarcerated is to be reintegrated as law-abiding citizens and have a loving partner makes this more likely. Whether maintaining the relationship is what's best for her is ultimately something she'll have to decide for herself. And I'll end with our friend Judge John Hodgman. You know, the, the, the line under his name says, he doesn't offer advice, he delivers justice. And Judge John Hodgman on tipping when you split the bill. Is it rude to ask what your dinner companion is leaving? Jonathan writes, my wife and I had dinner with another couple. The other gentleman, we'll call him Steve, and I split the bill. When our cards came back, Steve asked me how much I was tipping. I was dumbfounded. So the tips match, he said. I asked my wife and she agreed the tips did need to match. Who's right? And the judge writes, the question does feel a bit nosy, so I rule in your favor, but warily. My guess is that one of you, we'll call him Steve, was worried that the other, we'll call him you, was about to undertip and your wife shared his worry. Only you know the truth, but it's my experience that those who think and argue and write letters about tipping tend to be, well, tipping suspicious. We'll call them cheapskates. Yes, the American system of tipping is flawed, but it's how those who are serving you get paid Think less and tip more, I say. If this tip isn't for you, leave it for someone who needs it. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Magazine. My name is Bill McCann. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.